Mark chapter 5. If you were here in June, you may remember, you may not, and that's okay, but you may recall that I've already preached the passage that I'm going to preach to you again today, and that that's according to plan. That's not something I normally do, but there's so much happening in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, that I think it's going to take us three weeks uh, to, to really make sure we understand all the characters, all their motivations. It's such a unique story. In the, in the whole narrative of the book of Mark. Um, Mark doesn't really have a whole, another story in his gospel that, that lines up exactly with the way that people respond to Jesus, the problems that they have, the actions Jesus takes, the way the story resolves to some degree is even a surprise. Uh, this story is a story that's told in three parts. The first 13 verses or so is where we were in June, and we tried to focus in on a man who had been oppressed by demons. So depending on what translation of the Bible you have today, and there are many that are very good and faithful, uh, we'll be using the English Standard Version on the screen just because that's what a lot of you have uh, from from a scripture journal standpoint with you today, and that's great. But most translations uh, communicate that the man in the story that we're going to read about is possessed by demons. And for you and I, because we live in the West and we live in a post-Hollywood world, uh, demon possession really only means one thing in our imaginations, and it's that a demon, which is like a scary ghost kind of has moved into somebody's body and taken over the controls, kind of like the little Pixar emotions in the movie about the girl with big feelings, I don't remember the name of it, Uh, and they they play with the buttons and they play with the switches and the demon kind of takes over and makes the person do whatever they want. And that's not at all what the Bible is trying to communicate to you here in any way. Uh, If anything, the sense of possession simply means that this man has sworn allegiance to or has aligned himself with the kinds of things that a a demon would want. And that's why we see the man doing the things that he does. He runs away from other people. He isolates himself. He destroys and mangles his body. uh, He's disruptive. He's dangerous. He's scary. And all of that is kind of mocking the image of God that's born in this man, that this man is an image bearer of God, and therefore the demon's whole objective is to try to embarrass and shame God. The reason I'm telling you that is because I want you to have the right idea of what's going on here. We spent most of our time back in June focusing on how a person can become demonized or demon-oppressed, what that looks like and how it works itself out in that person's life, and what the solution to that problem is. And because we already did that in June, I'm not going to redo that again today, but I just want to, to throw out to you the opportunity that if you're really interested in that part of the story, and maybe today's your first Sunday or you've only been visiting for a few weeks, no, we didn't skip over that part. You just may have to get on our website and dig back a couple of months and find that teaching in order to get to the bottom of what's going on with the demonized man. We're going to read all 20 verses together again this morning in just a second, but I want you to know that our particular point of emphasis today will be from verse 14 to the end of verse 17. We're moving our attention away from the demons and away from the demonized man to the crowd. The crowd is this sort of impersonal character that's shown up again and again in Mark's gospel. At first, it's a small group of people. As Jesus breaks onto the scene in ministry in the city of Capernaum, he heals a man named Peter's mother-in-law who has a deadly fever. And in response to that, as soon as the Sabbath ends, uh, people from all over the city come out of their homes to the place that Peter lives And they begin to line up and ask Jesus to heal and save them as well. So Jesus builds a crowd, a following, based on that reputation and and the miracles that he did. That crowd stays mostly positive, mostly on Jesus' side, until we get to Mark chapter 5. I'll be emphasizing this a couple of more times this morning, but I just want you to come into the initial reading of the story with the mindset that we're going to watch the crowd do something that they've never done before, at least so far in the first four chapters of Mark's gospel. So with that groundwork laid, look with me, if you will, at your own copy of God's word or the screen behind me, if that's easier for you, at Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Jesus and his disciples, that's the they at the beginning of this verse, came to the other side of the sea, to the country 
of the Gerasenes, or the Gerasenes, depending on how you want to say that. I'm going to stop for just a second and make sure that you know, the night before these guys arrive at the shore of the Sea of Galilee here in Mark 5.1 is the night in which they experience the terrible windstorm. The windstorm that made the disciples think that they were all going to die. Jesus is asleep down in the bottom of the boat. They go get him. He rebukes the wind. The sea's calm, and they finish. They come across this, the Sea of Galilee and land, and that's where we're picking this story up. Just so you know what's going on chronologically, look at, look at verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Jesus, there met him out of the tombs, a man who had an unclean spirit. The man lived among the tombs. So now we know that there are tombs. There's a graveyard somewhere close by. There's a man who lives there. And furthermore, no one could bind him, not even with chains, for he had been bound with shackles. You can think of like handcuffs. He'd been bound with chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, something that probably most, if not all of us, could not do. He also broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and also on the mountains. So Mark is now telling us not only is there a graveyard close by, but there are mountains nearby right here at the edge of the water. That's going to that's gonna matter later in the story. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, just yelling and shouting, not really saying anything. Mark doesn't seem to remember him saying or anything of particular note, but just making a lot of noise in anguish, in agony, in pain, also cutting himself with stones. When this man saw Jesus from far away, this is verse 6, he ran and he fell down in front of Jesus. I, I picture this as if this guy just breaks into a dead sprint and then it's almost like he hits something invisible that he can't see. It just something kind of brings him to a stop. I don't think it was graceful. I don't think he lifted up the edge of his robe and tiptoed into the water and carefully got down on his knees and, and made himself known to Jesus. I think of it as a sloppy baseball slide. He's flying in right at Jesus' feet. And he says with a loud voice as he's coming toward Jesus, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? Okay, so he knows Jesus' name. That's a little bit odd since Jesus has not been in this part of the country at all so far in his life. Then he says not only Jesus' name, but who Jesus actually is. He calls Jesus the son of the most high God, meaning Yahweh, God the Father, all the same person. This demon, demonized man recognizes Jesus immediately, knows who he is, knows where he comes from, and goes on to beg him, saying, I beg you in God's name, by God, don't torment me. So I think in the first seven verses of this story, you and I are simply supposed to ask ourselves, why? Why is any of this happening? What in the world is going on? Mark tells us in verse 8, it was because Jesus was saying to the man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus asks him a question, verse 9. He says, what is your name? And the man answers and says, my name is Legion, which is another way to talk about uh, a subdivision of the Roman army. It's a lot of people working together. It's supposed to imply that this is not a singular demon that's oppressing this person's life. It's a group of demons working together to keep him beat down, to influence him, to cut himself, to put him in physical and emotional and spiritual pain. He says, we, my name is Legion for we're many, verse 10. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send the demons out of the country where apparently they had gotten very comfortable and were enjoying doing exactly what they were doing, hurting this man. Now, Mark mentions also, because remember this is not something Mark saw firsthand. Peter told him this story, so maybe it comes to Peter's memory here as he's telling the story. Oh, by the way, there was also a, a giant herd of pigs that was feeding on the hillside. We know there are mountains close by, so these are probably foothills that lead up into these nearby cliffs that are close to the town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And the demons begged Jesus, saying to him, send us to the pigs, 
and let us enter them. And so Jesus gave permission to the demons to do that. And the unclean spirits went away and they entered the pigs. And the herd of pigs, which numbered about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And that's about how far we made it last time. We talked about those demons. We talked about the man who had been demonized. All of a sudden, though, the pigs sort of enter the, the, the spotlight of the story. They become main characters for just a couple of verses. So I want to ask you, do you know anything about pigs? Anybody, really? Do you spend a lot of time with pigs? I don't know if we have pigs really in Alaska. I don't know how they do up here. It seems like pigs can live anywhere. They're kind of nasty like that. They just eat trash and make more pigs. So maybe we have them. I haven't seen a lot of them. But I can tell you, I grew up in East Texas, and uh, on my way this morning, I thought of two pig stories uh, that I could tell you. Uh, one of them, uh, probably I, I shouldn't and so I won't, but I have another pig story that I am going to tell you now that I think will add some color to this. Because if you don't know pigs, the pigs almost seem like they don't matter. But if you do know pigs and you understand what's going on with the pigs, why they're there, who put them there, what purpose they serve, I believe this color is going to gain a lot of depth and a lot of width and a lot of color for you, which will be helpful. Um, I grew up in Northeast Texas. There's a big summer camp in Texas that's called Pine Cove. Uh, when I went to college, I had never attended as a student, but when I went to college, I got a summer job there. And the second summer that I worked at this camp, I was put on the leadership team. And I say that in air quotes because if you have ever been a part of camp ministry or like college students that are in Christian leadership, really all that means is that you get to stay up later than everybody else and do stuff that's probably unwise while they all go to bed. So that's what I was doing that summer. I was staying up late and raiding the kitchen and making root beer floats at two in the morning. So one night, one night, not you shouldn't do that, but I did. One night, uh, our director, our camp director sent me a text. We had to have flip phones at the camp because we weren't allowed to have our cell phones. So I get this cryptic Uh, like T9. You guys remember how you text like that, where you had to press each button like 19 times to get one letter to come out? So I get this cryptic text that's like, meet at barn, 2 a.m. And I thought, meet at barn, 2 a.m. So I like called him, and he wouldn't answer, but he texted me again. He was like, too late to talk. Meet me there. I'm like, what are we doing at 2 a.m.? Normally when we do bad stuff, our camp director's not part of it, but this time he's inviting me to go with him, so I don't know what this is going to mean. So I show up in the dark, I have a flashlight. There's two other guys there that are also on the leadership team. And then our camp director's there. His name is Pat. And Pat's like, you guys got to turn all your lights off and just trust me. And I was like, no, not at all. I'm not going to do that. That's the beginning of every movie I've ever seen where people die. They die in the movie. I'm not going to do that. So we kind of like just put our hands over our flashlights and try to not make a lot of light. So Pat leads us through the woods. And we come to this fence row that's got barbed wire on it because it divides the property that belonged to the camp from the property that belonged to this other guy who I think was like a wealthy lawyer in Houston or something, and he just drove out on the weekends to hunt and hang out at a cabin. But we all knew not to go on his property. The campers couldn't go. We weren't supposed to go over there. We weren't supposed to mess with any of that stuff. So we get to the edge of this kind of barbed wire fence, and Pat finds a tree limb and sticks it between two of the lines of barbed wire, and he's like, go ahead. And we're like, what? No, this is totally off limits. This is against every rule you've ever given us. But he's like, we got to go. We got So we go through the barbed wire fence. We trek through the woods. And eventually he stops us at this big, like, dead tree. It's kind of bone white in the darkness. It doesn't have any leaves. It's been dead for a long time. And he's like, just be really quiet and stay right here and wait. I don't think it'll be very long. And again, we're like, very long until what? What is happening here? And so we wait and we wait. And we hear this sort of low, what sounds like a mechanical rumble coming from way, way off, like a couple hundred yards off, and it gets louder and louder and louder. And then, out of the darkness, pulls up one of these. Have you ever seen anything like this before? This is called a SHERP. This is an uh, amphibious vehicle. That means you can drive it on the land, and you can drive it in the water, and any combination of the two in between. 
And the particular Sherp that pulled up on the property that night had an additional piece, couple pieces of equipment, had a big spotlight right on the top, and then two more on kind of at 45 degrees. So we had about 180 degrees of light that we could see in front of this thing. And this guy pops open the hatch, just like that one, and he's like, you guys ready? Again, I don't know. I don't think we're ready. I'm not sure what we're about to do. But Pat says yes. So we got into the Sherp, and as I sit down and put my seatbelt on, there's just guns all on the inside of this thing. There's ammo boxes, gun racks, and I'm like, I don't know who we're going to war with, but I guess this is why I wasn't supposed to come over here at night, because this guy's out here with his gun tank. I don't know. So we get in the Sherp, and it's at that point that I find out that we are going feral hog hunting in the backwoods, middle of nowhere, South Texas. Uh, we rode around in the dark. Uh, there were a couple places that the hogs had rooted. If you guys don't know, feral hogs are like an epidemic in the southern United States. Something like 20 years ago, there were maybe 40,000. There's now two and a half million of them, and the government can't kill them fast enough. Uh, you can take as many hogs as you want, any time, any day of the year, no tags. You don't have to tell anybody. If you have a machine gun, you can use it on the hogs, whatever you want. The government's like, that's good. It's better that you did that than that you didn't, which is rare when you're using a weapon like that. So we go hunting for feral hogs, and when I tell you guys these are like the meanest animals I've ever seen in my life, like these are, we're in this tank, okay? I don't, I don't know a lot, but if the people that I'm fighting against are in that, I give up. I just say, the fight is over. You won. I don't even need to fight you. But there were some boars that were like six to 800 pounds that were like coming up and hitting the side of this thing, challenging the Sherp full of automatic weapons. Uh, we ended up taking like 25 hogs in two hours, I think, uh, and the way that works if you're an animal lover, I'll give you a good reason for why. My wife is an animal lover. This is not her favorite story. This is before we met, by the way. Uh, but feral hogs in Texas kill people. In 2019, a feral hog gored a woman until she bled out in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. They kill people's pets. They root up crops. They break buried electrical and water lines. Uh, they attack people's pets. So they do lots of things that you wouldn't want an animal to do in your community, and therefore they're considered a nuisance. Um, so here's my point in telling you this, okay? I'm pretty sure that night, none of those hogs were possessed by demons. I feel pretty confident about that, that that was not the situation we were facing. And still, these were some of the nastiest, meanest, most tenacious animals that I have ever had the displeasure of seeing in the moonlight. Understand that if you were standing near a cliff edge or near the ocean as a farmer, as a shepherd, responsible for not just a couple hundred hogs, but 2,000 pigs... And suddenly something happened where a man came up in a boat, pointed his finger, and your hogs started doing stuff that hogs don't do. I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I have to assume that the kind of demons that were causing a human man to cut himself, howl at the moon, and break chains probably did not cause those pigs to be more friendly when they entered into them, if you know what I'm saying, if you follow my logic there. Suddenly these herdsmen, these farmers, are faced with an army of demon-possessed swine and some of them are standing between the water that those pigs want to get into and the pigs themselves. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us either way, but I would say the odds are pretty good that at least one of those shepherds at least got bumped by a pig. You know what I'm saying? Probably worse. Probably the pigs didn't carefully go around the shepherds on their way screaming and grunting into the water to kill themselves. Probably they ran a few of those shepherds over. Here's why that matters. This encounter with these pigs is going to set the stage for the whole rest of the story. The spotlight, the focus, the camera, if you will, that's kind of showing us what's going on on screen in the Bible, it moves away from the demonized man. He is at best a supporting cast member for the rest of the story. Suddenly, these pigs, what happens to them and how people react becomes the whole point. And as a preacher and a teacher of the Bible, this has been challenging to understand why. 
Why did Peter take special note of this encounter? Why did he go out of his way to share these details with Mark? And why did Mark feel the need to write this down in what is literally the first book written of the New Testament of the Bible? Well, I think it's because you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, probably have more encounters with Jesus that go this way than we think we do. But I'm going to get there. So let's go back to the story now that there's a little bit of color going on here and see how do these people respond to 2,000 demonized hogs rushing for the sea to kill themselves. Verse 14 tells us this, that the herdsmen fled. Oh, there you go. That's all you need to know, right? That's smart. Good for them. I'm glad they did that. They would probably be dead if they didn't. They fled and they told what they had seen, which again, from their perspective, there's no way that they can know what's happened. It's not that when the demons left this man alone, there were suddenly these spooky Halloween spirits blowing in the wind that came over like a cartoon and landed on the pigs, and all of a sudden the pigs changed. One minute, these guys are trying to catch a breath because all night the night before, they've been protecting these pigs from this windstorm that blew in on the Sea of Galilee, some of them probably risking their lives in the dark to keep the pigs from running into the water and killing themselves. They're finally reaching a point where maybe a couple of them can take a mid-morning nap, and boom, the pigs lose their mind. This is the story that they're telling the people in the countryside and in the town. That's what it says. People came after they heard this to see what, what had happened. They couldn't believe it. They were like, there's no, no. Every single pig, all 2,000 pigs, they were fine yesterday. What did you guys really do? What really happened? And they're going, no, I'm telling you, we didn't do anything. We survived the storm. It wasn't the storm. Something crazy happened, and the pigs went nuts, and they killed themselves. So the people come out of the city, verse 15, to see what happened, and they come to Jesus, and they see the demonized man. And they recognize him. Why do they recognize him? Because he's been freaking their kids out for like a decade. He's been living in the graveyard, making it, you know how hard it would be to have a funeral, like a reverent funeral where you mourn and grieve when there's a naked man just screaming as loud as he can the whole time? It would dampen the mood a little bit, I think. So they know who this guy is. He's sort of become legendary, I think, in this community. They notice him, though. They notice him sitting there, which is new. They notice that he's clothed, which is new. And they noticed that he's in his right mind. And they were afraid. They did not celebrate. They did not cheer for him. Nobody came over and said, congratulations, welcome back. Won't your parents be so happy? Won't it be so good to be able to sleep at night and not worry that this naked man's going to charge through the door of my house and rip the locks off the, of the doors and attack my family? No, all they can think about is that the pigs are gone. And the pigs being gone is so important. It's such a big deal to them. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm, I'm doing this on purpose, but I'm trying to kind of build this up for you. It's so significant that all these people can process this fear. In the face of a genuine miracle. In a face of what is arguably the most dramatic miracle Jesus has done yet in the book of Mark. Yeah, he removed a single demon from an oppressed man in the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. That's great. And that made him a big deal for a little while. And he touched a leprous man, and he wasn't supposed to do that, but he did it anyway. And he rebuked a storm and helped his disciples survive a storm at sea. All of those are good things. But this is the first point where we really see Jesus make war on evil, where there's a genuine confrontation, where the demons are begging him, please, please, don't hurt us, don't torment us. And Jesus grants them mercy. He gives them the opportunity to go away without being destroyed. This is all brand new territory for them. Verse 16 tells us that the people who had seen it described again to these new people from town. Like, the inference there is that the folks who heard the story from the farmers in town couldn't believe it. So they run out, they see the demonized man, he seems fine. I guess there's probably, what, roughly 2,000 pig carcasses floating in the shallows of the sea. That's probably pretty convincing. But they're still turning back to the farmers and they're saying, so just say it again, what happened? What happened? These people never heard anything like this in their lives. They don't have a category for it, they can't comprehend it. It is by every definition of the work, a miracle. 
And here's what they do in response, verse 17. They began to beg Jesus to leave, to depart their region. And Jesus did it, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized begged Jesus that he might go along with Jesus. Jesus did not allow him to do that, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and tell them how God has had mercy on you. And the man went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is the region that this small city sits in on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee, he began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, verses 18, 19, and 20, the man approaching Jesus, Jesus saying, no, you can't come along, and sending him back to his hometown, that's where we're going to go next week. So I won't steal my own thunder, I'll just tell you, you can come back if you want to figure out what does that mean, and why did Jesus do that? It's the first time, again, a lot of firsts in this story. The first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has said no to someone who wants to follow him and has actually sent them away to do ministry instead of having them go along with him. And we'll go there next week and we'll talk about why. But in verse 14, some things happen that are dramatic and that the more you kind of dig into the story, in my opinion, become more and more shocking. We realize for the first time in verse 14 that this entire encounter with this demonized man has had witnesses. There's been an audience, this group of shepherds who are probably a little bit delirious, maybe doubting what their eyes can see because they've been all night, up all night, we can infer, fighting this windstorm, protecting the pigs. But there's an audience, there's a group of witnesses who see the demonized man change instantly and at the same exact moment, all of the pigs lose their minds. These guys are pig herders, which cranks the drama up. They're not just a group of people walking along the road there by, by the sea. These are men whose lives are invested in this herd of pigs. These pigs represent a lot of things that pigs would not necessarily represent to you and I. These pigs represent the livelihood of these men. They represent a source of income. They represent the only real assets that these men and most of their families have. There's no bank accounts in 30 AD. It's how many pigs do you have and how healthy are they and how likely does it look that they're going to keep having more litters of pigs two or three times a year. That's your investment strategy. The stock market is how many piglets survived. Really, that's all you have to invest yourself into. Suddenly, for these people, it's all gone. And it's not just their money that's been taken away, but it's these men's jobs that have now been removed from them, and by extension, very much their purpose has been taken away as well. These pigs, how healthy they are, how large this herd has gotten, it represents hard work. It represents committed enterprise on the parts of these men. It, it represents a lot of early, early mornings and late, late nights for them and their families. And suddenly, it's gone. These pigs also represent the shepherds risking their own lives. We can assume, based on other encounters in the ancient Near East, that there are wolves to deal with. There are thieves to deal with, bears and bandits, not to mention these sort of split-second windstorms that can kick up on the top of the Sea of Galilee. These men have fought, they have slaved, they have worked, they have said no to vacations, no to birthdays, no to other things that could have distracted them to be present with these pigs. And in about 30 seconds, all of that throws itself in the sea and drowns. And I don't know how frequently these people were eating pork, but I would assume it's pretty hard to process 2,000 pigs quickly. Even if you believe in salting and preserving it, there's just not much, that much you can do. And, and even if you did, sure, that puts food on the table, maybe for a couple of months at best. But the long-term investment, the financial future, the security, the inheritance, all of that is gone all at once. So I'll ask you then, how would you feel? How would you feel if right this second your bank account emptied itself with no explanation? Not somebody stole your money, it's just gone. And you call the bank and the bank says, we don't know, we have record that you had money, but we just, you don't have any money. We, just don't, we don't have any of your money, sorry. It just doesn't exist. We don't, we, we don't know where it is, we can't verify where you could go find it. It's just, it's disappeared. It's gone, immediately disappeared. 
What if on top of that, all of the food in your fridge and your pantry disappeared or rotted in seconds? What if on top of that, you lost your job or your spouse lost their job? What if on top of that, you lost your purpose? What if the thing that you built your days, that you scheduled your family's rhythms around was removed? No more regional meetings. No more future with a potential raise. No more next PCS location. No more new class of kids at school for you to get to know and pour yourself into. It's just over. It's shut down. It doesn't exist. There's not two pigs remaining to start over with. It's done. Do you see now why these people are processing negative emotions in Jesus' presence? You and I read this story and we go, yay, Jesus, he saved a guy's life. But don't miss the cost of that life. What did these people lose so that this man could regain his sanity, regain his consciousness, regain his agency? They lost everything. Total financial destitution. Now, maybe there's other people in town who have other jobs that aren't related to the pigs, but 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs, and it's very likely that we're talking at least a handful of major players in this city, big families who've built their whole future on this kind of market of swine selling and, and buying and slaughtering, and all of that's gone. It's disappeared completely out from underneath them. When you do something like this, when you experience something like this, when you lose your purpose, when you lose your job, the, the natural way that a person responds is grief. And though the Bible isn't explicit about it in this particular passage, if you pay close attention to verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, you see the first three stages of the five stages of grief. They jump right off the page at you. Look back at your Bible if you don't mind. In verse 14, we see the first stage of grief, which is denial. The people don't believe what they've heard. They can't believe it. These herdsmen are as trustworthy as it gets. These are the people that the folks in town have trusted to watch over their most valuable asset. You don't put jokers out there to do that that you don't trust and might make bad decisions and are going to get hung over and stay up late drinking and try to slip off in the night and do bad stuff. You put your best and your brightest in the place that you store your treasure. So when these men come into town and say, it's all gone and I can't explain it to you, it's so shocking that the people who receive that news, they drop whatever it is they're doing. And remember, this is 30 AD. These are not just people who are watching Netflix on their couch in their pajamas. They're busy people. They have a lot going on. They're always working, and they stop what they're doing, and they leave town to go to the shore of the sea and try to figure out for themselves what's really happening. Now, that denial is followed in verses 15 and 16 by the second stage of grief, which is anger. These guys are mad. They're really mad at what Jesus did. How dare he? Who does he think he is? And for what? For this demonized guy? This man who, by all accounts, probably made his own set of bad decisions that led him into being demonized in the first place. It's not like he was just walking through life innocent, making only good choices, and boom, a demon took over. No, this man's been engaging in a lifestyle that's invited the influence of evil. It's his own decision-making that put him in the tombs, in the graveyard. And now we're supposed to celebrate that this one guy who has no marketable skills, no family, and nowhere to live is sane again while we have to sacrifice our entire livelihood and future in exchange for that, Jesus? That makes them angry. So then in verse 17, they resort to the third stage of grief, which is bargaining. They begin to beg Jesus to leave. If he stays, who knows what else he'll take? If he stays, who knows? It could be their lives, it could be their homes, it could be their children. This is such a cataclysmic event that they've had to live through. They've lost all footing. They have no more sense of reality, and they are panicking. They are reacting out of sheer emotion. Jesus, go. And they're not just telling him, they are begging him. Please leave. Tears, anguish, emotional pain. Please get out of here before something else happens. They want him gone because it's too costly to have Jesus around. It's too painful to have Jesus close by. It's become too personal. It's become too scary. 
And so he leaves. Now, the shocking part of this story to me, there's a lot of little wrinkles, obviously. The pigs are important, the way the economy in that region worked, the nature of this demonized man, where does he come from, what happens in the rest of his life. All of that matters, but to me, the hook in this whole story, the reason I think Peter told this story so often that Mark remembered it and wrote it down in his account of Jesus' life is because this is the first time that a crowd has rejected Jesus. There have been people who've walked away, here and there, They've been upset, they've been disappointed. If you read John's gospel especially, it happens a lot. But this is the first moment when wholesale, a crowd of witnesses gets together, sees a person whose life is transformed, and equate at the end of that transformation, it wasn't worth it and we don't want anymore. When Jesus is healing, everybody loves Jesus, right? When Jesus is teaching, everybody loves Jesus. His hypotheticals, his theoretical discussions of what the kingdom of God could be like and how great our relationships could be if we would just follow God and do what he says, that sounds really good. We'll clap for that kind of thing. When Jesus is setting people free from evil spirits, most of the time, when he's feeding the hungry with his miracles, everybody loves Jesus. But what about when Jesus takes away the things that people love the most? Then what do we think about him? What happens when Jesus removes the thing that gives you security, the thing that gives you purpose, the thing that you root your identity in, the thing that's going to lead to all the opportunities that you're looking forward to? What happens when following him and him loving and saving someone else costs you the thing that, if you're honest, you might love just a little bit more than you actually love Jesus himself? What do you do then? What happens when Jesus leads a person into poverty? What happens when Jesus kills off the thing you've spent your life growing and protecting and treasuring? When I think of it like that, it's actually not that hard for me to understand why the people of the Decapolis responded the way that they did. In the flow of the story that Mark is telling in his book, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, it's shocking how forcefully these people reject Jesus and send him away. But if we look at our own selves, if we take just a second and evaluate the narrative of our own lives, the story that each of us is living, it's not all that hard to imagine loving something more than Jesus. It's not a logical leap to imagine ourselves fearing Jesus, not the reverent awe of God being good and big, but the active panic of what will he take from me next. I think we can put ourselves in those shoes. What might Jesus demand that we walk away from in order to follow him? Or like the story in Mark 5, what might Jesus take without asking if we let him get too close? You see, I think this mindset is the number one cause of people letting Jesus a little bit into their lives, but never really experiencing transformation. The lie that we tell ourselves, and that we're very quick to believe, is that following Jesus is primarily an act of giving up things, not of getting things back. This is the lie that the Gerasenes, the people of the Decapolis, believed. They believed that Jesus represented a negative sum in their lives, a black hole, if you will, that was going to suck in all the things they loved and cared about and leave them with less than that. These people were still walking in the way of the world. They were still, from my perspective, pursuing what we would call the spirit of the age, common thought, the the common uh, sort of conclusions that we reach together on social media and online and in our life groups and with our homeschool co-op and with the other people on the PTO and the people that we work with and our neighbors. We We have these sort of unspoken values about how to get ahead and how to succeed and how to be happy. And frankly, they're mostly not rooted in the way of Jesus. They're mostly rooted in self-advancement and self-promotion and all the stuff that we've been picking on for three or four weeks as we've studied simplicity. For the people of the Decapolis, they made a very logical decision that day. They saw what Jesus could do. They were unwilling to get to know him personally. They didn't want to welcome him into the, the depths and recesses of their inner lives, and so they just rejected him outright. They asked him to move on, and he did. You see, you and I are really not that different from the people of Decapolis. 
you and I naturally are opposed to what Jesus wants to do in our lives. This is not just a problem for ancient people from Bible times. This is a problem for all people who've lived at any point in history. Modern people, like the people in the story, have a natural instinct to just go with the flow, to learn how to be successful and how to be happy from the people around them instead of sourcing that knowledge in God, in asking God who designed us what his intention was from the beginning. Later on in the Bible, if you were to flip to the right a few books, there is a record of correspondence that exists, a letter that was written from a man named Paul to a group of people that he loved in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is, was the capital of the Roman region of Asia Minor. It's a strategic city where Paul traveled in person and he planted a church there. And it wasn't very big, we don't think, and it didn't just take off right away and those people had a lot of problems. Paul ended up having to send his apprentice Timothy back potentially two times, but at least once, to appoint elders and leaders because the church was just a mess. It was in chaos. So don't think that Paul's speaking to people that are like varsity Christians and you're not. He's talking to people like you and I who have real problems. Paul told that church that very young church, why it is. Because they had the same experience. He told them why it is that their neighbors and their peers speak of Jesus as if he's scary. Why they're afraid to follow him. Why they resist going the way of Jesus. He says this in the second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. He says, although you were dead in your offenses, just like your neighbors are now, you were dead in your sins in which you formerly lived. You lived according to the world's present path. That's what I'm talking about. You were going with the flow. You were following the spirit of the age. You were living according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. He's talking about God's enemy, Satan. You were doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. You were doing what the demonized man was doing. Maybe you keep your clothes on and you don't howl at the moon, but interior life-wise, you're still living for yourself and doing whatever feels good. That's the way you were before Jesus entered in, Paul says. He goes on in verse 3 to say, among whom all of us formerly lived. Anybody who's been saved by grace at one point was to be found among the kinds of people who just want to disobey God. All they want to do is get Jesus back on the boat and back across the sea. Get out of here. Get away from me. We're okay. We don't need your help. Paul goes on to say that that kind of lifestyle is a life that lives out the cravings of the flesh. Think, think instincts. Think urges. The, the carnal, primal, physical stuff that drives you into bad decision-making. He says we were indulging those things, indulging the, the flesh, indulging the mind, and therefore we were by nature, by nature of what we had done and who we were, we were children of wrath. That means the only inheritance waiting on us was God's full unbridled anger because we kept saying to God repeatedly, constantly, all the time, I know what I'm doing. I don't need you here. You see, it's very rare, even statistically, for a person in the West to actually practice some kind of religion that aggressively goes after God by name. Even Satanist churches are primarily gathering places for atheists. They mostly don't talk about God or mention him. What's much more typical for you and I is to have enough understanding of who God is to have heard about the Bible, read a couple verses, maybe we saw the Ten Commandments movie on TV one time, we drive by a church on the way to work every once in a while, that we think we can kind of knit all that together and collectively understand what Christianity is. Based on that knowledge that we think we have, we then feel qualified to reject it. To say to God, ah, it's not good. It's not going to work. I don't need it. I'm doing okay. It's too complicated. The Bible doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. I've never felt God like some of these people talk about. And so I just think it's a bunch of BS. And I'm out. Jesus, get back in your boat. Go back to where you came from, and we're going to be fine here without you. The people of the Decapolis in Mark 5 are the exact same as the people of Ephesus in Ephesus 2, before they knew Jesus. And those two groups of people are exactly the same as the people of Anchorage, where you live. People who are driven 
by the status quo, people who've been deceived by the spirit of the age, the assumptions and beliefs and perspective that is common to all people that does not come from God. Paul has harsh words for that kind of lifestyle. He says it's offensive to God. He says that it's, it's sinful by nature, that walking the path of the world is not neutral, it's not innocent, it's actually walking in step with God's enemy, Satan. Why? Why would a person want to do something like that? Why would it be so important to the people of the Decapolis, to these Ephesian people, to some of us? What could be so important that we protect this inner secret that we carry instead of surrendering ourselves to Jesus? Paul says it's our cravings. It's our instincts. It's our urges. And for us, that might be power. It might be sex. It might be money. It might be opportunity. It might be shame. Something negative, deeply rooted inside of you that causes you to act and behave like a person that deep down you are not. But we live that way. You guys have heard the word narcissism thrown around in culture in the last five years. Everybody that's mean is a narcissist now. Narcissism, real narcissism, is not rooted in ego. You may not know this. Real narcissism is rooted in shame. Narcissists are not narcissistic because they're convinced they're better than you. They're narcissistic because they've learned to act like they're better than you to cover up the fact that they're still stuck at eight years old in whatever trauma they lived through as a child that they've never outgrown. So that negative emotion can be just as powerful and just as motivating as the positive. The Apostle Paul categorizes all those things as cravings, all of them as urges, as appetites. He says we've been indulging our minds. We make up these fantasies and live as if they're true. We've been indulging our stomachs is the way it's written in Greek, but the parts of us that are wicked, that are motivated by our cravings. He's not just talking about food. He's talking about the the decision center in your body, that you just go with the flow. You do whatever feels good. You don't think about it. You let tomorrow worry about tomorrow, and you just ride it out. Paul says that's not neutral. It's not safe. It's not okay. It's walking in step with God's enemy. So what's the solution? What solves a problem like this? What does a demonized man who lives in a graveyard do if he wants to change? Well, he has to have an encounter with Jesus. The same remedy that Jesus offers to that demonized man in the graveyard is also available to the people of the Decapolis. It's inferred in verses 14 through 17. It's explicit in verses 18 through 20. Where we're going to go next week is the whole story of this previously demonized man going and sharing the good news with his neighbors, and they respond. The miracle doesn't do it. The testimony takes him there. So people like you and I who have problems that fit anywhere on the spectrum, whether you live in a graveyard and are demonized or you just have an investment that you're scared God might not honor if you let him too far into your life, anywhere that you exist, the solution is an encounter with Jesus. The solution is to open yourself to do the scary thing you're afraid of and say, God, if you're as good as they say, then you won't take more than you give. And that's what the Apostle Paul says has happened to the Ephesian church. Look at verse four in chapter two. Five things God has done to demonstrate his love to these people and to you if you are found in Christ. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. That's the first thing he's done is he's loved you. While you were dead, while you were wicked, while you were sinful, while you were going the way of God's enemy, you were loved the whole time. Second, God acted on that love because even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made those of us who are alive, alive in Christ. He applied the blood of Jesus, the life of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection to us, and we've been made alive in Christ. This is exactly what he did to the demonized man in the graveyard. Now we are alive with Christ because we've been saved by grace. Verse 6 tells us the third thing that God has done. He has raised us up. What a beautiful picture. A man who used to literally live in a grave, and now he's free. Now he's been taken out of the graveyard, he's been set free, he's been as resurrected as you can be in this physical body and returned to the life that he could have never scratched and clawed his way back into. 
I don't think this demonized man was howling at the moon and scaring kids because it was fun. I think he was in genuine spiritual anguish because he could not get out of the circumstances he had created for himself. Jesus opens the door. He says, depart, leave evil spirits, regardless of what it costs this community, regardless of what it costs these people who've been so skeptical and antagonistic toward this man, get out, he's alive again, raised with Christ. After having been raised, now we've been seated together with Jesus in the heavenly places. Regardless of how your life is going, once you're found in Christ, you are eternally, perfectly, spiritually seated in the heavens with Christ himself. And why? Why would God do these four things? What motivates him? Verse 7 tells us that because he intends to demonstrate in the coming ages, which means all of time and past the end of time, when time no longer exists, God will still be demonstrating the surpassing wealth of his grace in kindness toward us. That's why Jesus crossed the sea. That's why Jesus came shouting out of the boat through the shallows at this man who everybody else would have ignored. You know how I know that? Because they have been ignoring him. That's their solution to his problems is to look the other way and hope that he doesn't involve himself in their lives too much. Jesus comes roaring out of the shallows into this man's life, rebukes the demons regardless of the fiscal cost, whatever pain or suffering it puts the community through. The same Jesus who takes those pigs would give these people boundless and endless life in himself. He asks Peter in, in three chapters, what would it benefit you to gain the whole world? He's implying, what would it, gain, what would it benefit you to keep all the pigs and lose the demonized man, to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul, to forfeit your empathy, to forfeit your love, your generosity, your benevolence, the parts of you that bear the image of God. The same Jesus who challenges Peter with that idea acts on it here, and it's a story Paul is so familiar with that he tells this church in Ephesus, this is how it works. God wants so badly to show you his kindness forever, past the end of forever, that he has loved you, he has raised you, and he has seated you with him. And that isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to change. That's why this demonized man is transformed. Not because Jesus did a little magic trick, but because Jesus applied the eternal love of God to a person, borrowing against the sacrifice that Jesus is going to make in just a few months at this point in the story. When he goes to the cross, he applies that to this man, and new life enters in. This is the testimony of every sinner who's been saved by Jesus from the beginning of time until now. The Apostle Paul puts a bow on this passage passage in verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians 2 when he says it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It comes as a gift from God. Even the faith to believe is given to us as a gift by God himself. It is not from works, and it is not from works so that none of us, none of you, not I, can boast. We can never say, look at how good of a Christian I am. That doesn't exist. It's only the faith that God gives that we put in the grace that God gives that provides for us the eternal life that God gives. For we are his creative work. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we can do them. So what's the point? The point is that all these people come sprinting out of town to see what's happened to the pigs And there is sitting on the ground, quietly, not boasting, not monetizing, not parading, a man whose life has been changed forever by Jesus. And they miss it. They can't even see him. They don't care. Mark tells the story as if their eyes just glance across him, and he simply exists in their mind to prove that the story of the shepherds is true. But they don't care about him personally. They're not connected to his story. They don't celebrate what God has done for him at all. And if you and I are not careful, we will do the same thing. 
We will become about the things that we like, the things that we want, and the things that we love more than we love Jesus. And when Jesus does a miracle, especially if he does that miracle in spite of what we want, especially if that miracle is costly to you and I, we stand the risk of maybe saying to Jesus, that's enough. Could you move along, please? Would you get back in the boat and sail to the shores of other people's lives? Because it hurts too bad, and it costs too much to have you here. My friends, if Jesus can heal a demonized man who literally lived naked in a graveyard, cutting himself with rocks, breaking chains with his hands, and howling at the moon, he can save you. You have less problems than that, I think, just from looking at you. You have your clothes on. That's a head start, okay? You're miles ahead of this brother. If Jesus can do that, what can't he save you from? And why would it be worth the risk of holding back? What could possibly be valuable enough that you hang on to it tighter than you would cling to Jesus if he comes to you out of the boat shouting at the evil in your life, get out and go? What would be worth retreating from Jesus for in order to save that? Because here's the reality. Those of us who reject Jesus, we think what we're rejecting is the same thing the people of the Decapolis rejected. We think that we're saving ourselves. We think that we're saving ourselves from institutionalized religion. We think we're saving ourselves from abusive pastors. We think we're saving ourselves from all the damage and negativity that's happened as conservative politics have gotten married to the evangelical church. All right, I don't live in a, in a bubble. I'm in the same world you are. I've seen it. I felt it. It grieves me too. But we convince ourselves that we can protect ourselves from that, from the corruption and the evil that people have done in Jesus' name. And like the people of the Decapolis, we tell Jesus to go. But what we are actually protecting ourselves from, what we are insulating our lives from, is what Paul told the Ephesians is possible that God would love you, that he would save you, that he would make you alive, that he would raise you up, and that he would seat you with Christ in eternity. That's what you're protecting yourself from. It's not the pigs you're gonna lose in the sea. That's not the big damage. That's not the whole point. The point is that whatever God takes from you will be worth giving up because what do you get in exchange? Paul told us. You get life that never ends, and it's not boring. You become the object of affection for the God of the universe forever. So do you want your pigs, or do you want that? That's what you get to choose between. That's the choice that all of us make. We convince ourselves we're protecting something valuable, but really we're forfeiting the only unconditional love that any of us will ever have an opportunity to engage in. We're giving it up for the pigs. So I'm done, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do, and I don't do this very often. But I want to challenge you to consider where your heart is today. What is it resting in? What is your safety? What is your security? It's something. I'm speaking to myself this morning as much as I'm speaking to you. I work at a church, and I still struggle to put all of my eggs in Jesus' basket on a daily basis. Our band is going to come and sing after I pray, but when I'm done, just for about three minutes, that's how long it's going to take for us to sing this final song, I'm going to be available to you here. And Mike Schmidt, who welcomed you so graciously this morning to the service, one of our elders, he'll also be in the back on the floor. And our intention is to be available to listen. If God is working on you, if he's pushing you, if something about the way that these people reject Jesus rings awfully true and feels a little bit like looking into a spiritual mirror, this is a great opportunity to do something about that, to make a decision or to ask a question or to pray a prayer of surrender and simply say to God, I've been resisting you, I've been building walls, I've been protecting myself, and I, I'm not going to do it anymore. I don't want to, and I need your help. My friends, this is not a church that's built on performance-driven Christianity. We believe what the Apostle Paul said. It is by grace, through faith, and it's all a gift of God. So I am not inviting you to turn a new leaf over and try a little harder starting tomorrow morning. What I am saying to you is you have an opportunity if it would help you. For a man who loves you and cares very much 
to simply stand beside you while you confess to God that you need his help to do what he's asked you to do. That's what I'm inviting you to do. So I'm going to pray for us. The band will come and get ready to play. And then if you want to speak with me or you want to speak with Mike, just come and grab us. We'd love to pray with you and pray for you and know how God is working on you. Let's do that together now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the magnitude and the gravity of the way that the story of the Bible is told. It never fails to impress me, Father, that the minute details, that the further we dig in and the harder we try to tap into what you're doing and what you're saying in your word, it just brings to life. It becomes so vivid and so compelling. So I ask God a favor of you today. I ask that you would work on us and in our hearts, that you would not allow us, like the people of the Decapolis, to say to you, move along, I've seen enough, I've had enough, and I'm not interested. Challenge us, God, please. Challenge us to surrender, not to make much of ourselves. We don't want to boast. The vision I have in my mind, Father, as I pray now, is just a group of people similar to that demonized man, simply sitting where they are, clothed in their right mind, not boasting, just glad, glad to be saved, glad to be known, glad to have found a home for themselves. Father, we love you and we trust you, and I ask you to do this work and to guard and protect us from convincing ourselves that you are if you're not, but to give us the faith to move if it's time to move if you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Church, you can stand, and we're gonna sing a song of response.